It's Carolyn Glick. Welcome to another episode of the Carolyn Glick Midis News Hour. I'm joined, as always, by my host, uh, Dr. Gotti Kaub. Hi. Gotti, hi. Hi. We have a lot of anniversaries today, huh? None of them, yep, apparently. I'm trying to sound cheery. None of them are yeah. good, except we have Rosh Hashanah is nice. And then we have Yom Kippur, which is less nice. But, but w- w- since we talked on a Hebrew podcast, so I know part of what's coming so it, we had the anniversary of 9-11 the anniversary of the anniversary of Durban is coming up and so is the anniversary of Oslo right so today we're recording it's September 13th and today is the 28th anniversary of the Oslo Accords um, which may have been the single biggest uh, strategic blunder that Israel has ever undertaken, and maybe anybody ever has, but we'll get into that in a second. Um, Earlier this week, we had the 20th anniversary of September 11th, and I don't think that it's a surprise that it happened after Israel went on, went uh, embarked on the Oslo process with the PLO. Um, But on the other hand, uh, one thing that you didn't mention is that um, this is also the first year anniversary, the first anniversary of the Abraham Accords. And a year ago, on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, I came home from the White House. I was in Washington for, I think, a grand total of uh, 35 hours on the ground. Uh, and I went to the White House. I had this exhilarating experience watching Israel sign peace accords with uh, the UAE and Bahrain. And then later, uh, Sudan and um, Morocco joined them. Um, and that was a totally different experience from the Oslo process, which I think we may have mentioned. I was one of the core, nego- core members of Israel's negotiating team during uh, the, t- the sort of the height of the Oslo fake peace process from 1993, 1994 until the end of 1996. What was your role exactly? I was the coordinator for civilian uh, talk. So it was about transferring civil powers from the civil administration, which uh, uh, runs the affairs, uh, the civil affairs, the government, basically, in Judea and Samaria and Gaza, uh, to the PLO, uh, to the Palestinian Authority. You must have been I, a, uh, a reluctant member of the team. Um, I was, and the truth is, I was. I, I became very. Um, it was very difficult emotionally for me. I have to tell you the truth, and 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 frankly, physically. I mean, I, I was working twenty hours a day seven days a week, not six. Um, and uh, I was little, I was young. I was. Uh, I started when I was 24, I think, and I, it went until I was 26, 27. You were what? You were out of the army by then. You were an officer, right? No, I was in the you army. In the I army? was an officer. I was a, ca- I was a captain in the army. Um, and uh, I did it as, a, as an army officer from the Office of the Coordinator of Government the Office of the Coordinator of Government Activities in Judea, Samaria, oh, wow. and Gaza. Um, and yeah, so I was at the, I was like, I, I used to say that I was like Forrest Gump, that I was, you know, a, a bystander to history in all of these places, but I wasn't actually a bystander there. I was very active. And we can get into that a little bit um, and what the nature of it was and why it's important to discuss it, not only because of its continued horrible legacy in Israel, but also because it seems that our new government is reinstating them. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's really, um, it's, it's an interesting time. But before we do that, you know, I think 
for many years after JFK was assassinated in the United States, people would ask, where were you on the day that he was, when he was, when he was shot? And I think it's worth noting where we were and what we were doing um, when the towers were, were bombed on 9-11 and, and the Pentagon, uh, at that field in, in Pennsylvania. So what were you doing, Daddy, back 20 years first ago? First of all, were you? if, you know, Israelis have morbid jokes. So the first thing I was reminded of when you said that is the Gary Larson cartoon that has like a, a place in the forest and all the animals are sitting, like thinking solemnly about something. And the caption reads, all the animals remember where they were when they heard that Bambi's mother was dead. And, um, and and this is JFK. You're bad. 9-11. And also the Rabin assassination, right? Everybody in Israel. Right, so you're, say, you're saying this is kitschy. We, we, we shouldn't do this. But no, I have a reason I, to no, do it. So. I, I, was, I was actually in New York. So I have a was, programmatic plan that I've concocted. You, and we're going to get to it. But we're going to start with you. You always have. Me, and it's my and job. And I'm going to have a segue. It's my job know? to disrupt it. Uh, this is why I'm so here. So you disrupted. Right. <laughs> so I was in New York, and I was woken up by a a, a young uh, girl student who was uh, my junior. I was already you studying. were a student. I was a student at Rutgers. I think it was it's a PhD program in American history, and it was my second or third year, third I think. And and this this younger student calls me in the morning and said, "Do, do you think?" that that the university would cancel classes today and i said why would they and she said well because the the twin towers were hit by airplanes and i said girl you're new to new york you gotta calm down it's not for and then i opened i had aol you know that service the 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 internet service AOL and I open it and the, like the on their opening screen was a live shot I I don't think it was moving it was <laughs> an old computer and an old internet but the the towers we we with smoke and of course studies were canceled and then my friend my friend Max who lived on the Hudson I think about a hundred meters. Um, away from the the towers, they evacuated them because they didn't know which way the towers would fall, and they and he came here with his wife. He came here to my apartment. I lived on West Fifteenth Street between Seventh and Eighth, and I had a garden apartment. And we hooked some TV with you know a, I don't know a a coat hanger for an antenna, to so we could watch it from the garden like with a long electrical cord into the garden. I had a, we we had a patio. And we sat there, they had a, a one-year-old baby, and we felt like the world has has completely turned on its head. And then I was I you know, I was an Oslo supporter, as you know, at, at the time. And and my friends from Israel called me and said, Now the Americans will understand us. Now they they will understand our side. So even on the left, people thought that, you know, it's easy to see the peace process from Washington, but now they understand who we're dealing with. So where were you, Carolyn? Ha-ha! <laughs> 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 Ha-ha! <laughs> 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 well, I was living in Givatayim at the time, and I was writing from a Korishon, and it was uh, September 11th, and I had a... Makorishon, for our listeners in English, is, is a sort of right-wing center newspaper who's now supporting... No, well, back in the day when it I was, wrote for it, it was a right-wing, it was a right-wing newspaper. That's because you and wrote they for had, right, And they had hired me when I graduated uh, from my master's program and as their senior uh, 
as your as our senior commentator. And I was writing my my column for the weekend paper. It's a weekend newspaper. And I was writing my column and I had to get it in, I think that day. And it was about the eighth anniversary of the Oslo process and what a disaster it had been for Israel. And a friend of mine whose name was Gotti, by the way. Wow. Uh, yeah. He he called me up and I was uh I was pressed for my deadline or what I thought was going to be my deadline. And he said, Carolyn, you have to turn on the television. And I said, why? I'm I'm in the middle of something. I'm working. I have to, I have to send my article. He said, Carolyn, you have to turn on the television. The whole world has changed. He said, what do you mean the whole world has changed? And I, I and he said, what do you mean the whole attack. world has changed? I haven't even right. published my piece yet. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not even done writing it yet. So I said, what? <laughs> I, so anyway, I turned it on. We didn't have Fox in Israel then. I don't know if there, I think there was Fox, but we only had CNN. I turned on CNN and the, and they had the smoke rising from the first tower after the first plane had come in. And like two minutes after I turned on the television, the second tower was hit. And I said, oh, so I called up my editor, Emmanuel Shilo, and I said, um, I I'm going to need an extension on my deadline. I have to write a completely different article. <laughs> so there went that. And uh, oh. and then so that that was that. But it's interesting, you know, because then shortly thereafter, it was before Rosh Hashanah, as you say, I mean, Rosh Hashanah seems to be a popular time for mega mega terrorist attacks. And um so I got onto a plane with, I had a dog then named, her name was Olivia, and uh, I got her, I, I, we went to the United States, and we got on one of the first flights, and there were only flights to New York, so we got to New York, I rented a car, and uh, we drove down to uh, my sister in Washington, and, um, and I remember uh, on September 12th, George Bush gave a speech before the joint houses, apropos of what your what your friend said to you uh, about, and now everybody's going to understand, and a lot of people in Israel really did think that. I had written that maybe they would understand, I think, at the time. And um, George Bush gave this speech before the joint houses on September 20th. And uh, he did two things in that speech which were pretty, pretty notable. And I think that they were very... Um, uh, fateful in terms of what ended up happening in the war. And the first thing that he said was that the United States was going to go to war against all uh, all terrorist organizations and and regimes that gave them shelter who have global reach. All terrorist organizations with global reach. And you know, at the time, this was a year into the the Oslo War, the war that the Palestinians began uh, when they rejected what was supposed to be the end state of the Oslo process, which was a two-state solution with a Palestinian state and all of uh, Gaza, almost all of Judea and Samaria, and, and partitioned Jerusalem with Palestinian sovereignty over, over parts of Jerusalem. They rejected that two-state solution, uh, and they went to war with us. They opened their terrorist attack in, on September 28, 2000, just before Rosh Hashanah. And, uh, you know, over 150 Israelis had already been, been butchered in the previous year from these Palestinian <coughs> terrorist attacks. We had major suicide bombings in the summer of 2001. Um, and there was George Bush before the joint houses of Congress saying, well, that doesn't count. Because yeah. that's local terrorism, Palestine, local terrorism. So it wasn't that he said, we're not keeping, we're not counting the Palestinians, but the fact that he said of... Uh, of of global reach. Um, it was clear that he didn't mean us. 
And so that, that was the first deflating thing. And the second, the second thing that I thought was pregnant with implications for the future was that um, he said essentially, the, not essentially, but in so many words, I don't remember the exact quote, that Americans who want to help the United States after 9-11 should go shopping. And I thought that that was pretty astounding. I mean, there were there were so many millions of Americans. If he had just said join the army, they would have joined it right then and there. You know, the army could have gotten another five divisions of regular forces of Americans who wanted to join up. And he didn't call for them to do anything like that. Yeah. You know, he he told them to go shopping to uh, to keep the economy going. And um, I thought that those were two pretty amazing things. So I, I'll add did. one because my my perspective was academic, not in the sense that I had any scholarly knowledge about this, but in, in the sense that I was in university. And and so they there were there were ads in the newspapers calling for people to come to study Arabic uh, for the CIA and for the for the military services in America and Mesa, which is the the national organization of Middle East scholars called for people not to participate in these programs because this is a study of language meant to enhance colonialism. So you look at this is a this is a, a, a an association of scholars in the Middle East calling people not to study Arabic. And it's like this is the rot that Edward Said was. You don't need to look at the world. You don't need to look at Arabs, you need to look at yourself and search for your inner guilt. This is, and, and this is, this later turned into the Obama presidency. Yeah, it did, and it also turned into, um, you know, we were, we, I did your podcast, uh, your Hebrew language podcast with you this week, right? Yeah, and uh, that was a lot of fun, <laughs> and yeah, so that was fun. And and in, in your in your thing, we devoted the entire podcast to talking about nine eleven and the Durban conference, which ended four days before the nine eleven attacks. And uh, we talked about it in, in in sort of the framework of the article that I had written for last Friday's paper, where uh, my essential argument was that, um, you know, people forget about the Durban conference. And if they remember it, they remember that it was an orgy of anti-Semitism, that it was the place where, you know, the, the, uh, a lot of the countries in the world and uh, the entire human rights community uh, joined in with uh, the radical left uh, and the, the Islamic world to uh, demonize Israel and to delegitimize its right to exist uh, and to castigate it as uh, the, essentially the greatest threat to, to, to world peace. And this, you know, and while this was going on, by the way, there was a massive terrorist attack in Jerusalem at the Sparrow Pizzeria, where you had 15 people, eight of whom were children, uh, who were murdered in a suicide bombing. Um, and a lot of American citizens, by the way, were killed there too. Uh, that day, and, and you know, an entire family, five members of the family were killed. It, it was a horrible, horrific bombing, and it happened during the during the Durban conference, and nobody cared. Uh, they continued on with their condemnation of Israel and their lionization of Arafat, who was at the Durban conference and being feted by everybody from Kofi Annan and 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 uh, Jesse Jackson and and God only knows who. Oh, and Fidel Castro was there also. 
Um, so it, you know, they, the, it, was it was the epitome this... of of the the soft bigotry of low expectations. Like, oh, the Arabs—they're doing—they're doing these suicide bombs. They're really angry. It always reminds me of this this uh, I don't know how the dark humor from the Onion, where they had one headline saying Hitler's destruction of Europe, a desperate cry for help. This is, you know, right. when the Arabs do something, it's not, it's, it's our fault. It's, we, we haven't, we haven't been sensitive enough to their needs. That's true. And, and on the other hand, the Jews are the root of all evil. And I mean, there was even, I mean, there was even Holocaust denial, a lot of it going on at the Durban conference and calls for the mass murder of Jews. Um, and so it, we, we remember it for that and reasonably so, but we don't remember it, uh, sort of two other major things that are incredibly important when you look at it in terms of 9-11. Uh, one of them is that um, you know, there was a very uh, Israel was the direct target, and and you know the idea that anti-Zionism was a kosher form of anti-Semitism, and that it became normative to be hateful of Jews and to blame them for all of the ills in the world. You know that that sort of uh, conceit, uh, if it wasn't born in us in in Durban, I don't think it was. I mean, it's been going on for quite some time. But it certainly got codified there, and it became a blueprint for action there for the entire uh, red-green alliance of the of the um, international left and and the Islamists in in their in their coalition to to defeat uh, the Jews. But that coalition actually wasn't just about defeating the Jews; it was also about defeating Western civilization and first and foremost the United States of America. And so one aspect of that was the anti-Semitism, that the the hatred of the Jews um, was directed directly at the Jews, obviously, but it was also a means of, of undermining the moral confidence of the West. Um, because the more that the more that they um, that they would attack uh, Israel, they were that that through their attack on Israel, they were also basically saying that the moral undergirding of Western civilization, which is the Bible, and which is uh, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition, um, that that itself is rotten. And that you know the people of the Bible are colonial occupiers of the land of Israel. So the, the founding myth, not only of the Jews, but of Western civilization is, is, a, is a lie. And, and, and this uh, is so striking. We've had this conversation before, so I'll tell you what I, what I took from it and, and, and the thought just haunted me is that how this turned into, how this tuned in into the hatred of America that I was absorbing and trying to resist in a, in a, in a history department in the United States because it was, we, we learned, I had some sane teachers, especially my, my, my advisor, Jackson Lears, who's a, who's a great historian, a, a sober fellow, and, and there are a few others. But generally, the atmosphere in the program was of America hatred. So America is imperialist, racist, killed the Indians, xenophobic, homophobic, transphobic, whatever, racist above all. And, and the only people willing to say anything good about America in my class of PhD students were me and a Japanese student who did diplomatic history. All the others, all the others were just spewing this America hatred. And, and, and you know, I came with certain immunity because my, my, my father 
was obsessed with history and only one episode, the World War II. And you know, you can spend your life studying the history of World War II, such a complex event. And, and when I was critical of things American as I was in, in my youth, my father said, don't ever forget that America saved the world from Germany twice. Since then, it saved the, Germany, the world of Germany twice and then from communism um, and won the Cold War. And hopefully it will rise again to resist China. But, but, but Americans just forget it. And so what you're saying about, about how Durban was anti-Western civilization, this is an extension of what the American Academy was already doing with American right. hatred. I was writing a PhD about Richard Rorty, which I was very critical of. He's a postmodern. But he wrote a book about patriotism. And he was just slammed for it because he said he, he had... He, he had this stick about solidarity, which he thought it would come out of tolerance. But he wanted he wanted liberalism to stem not from general principles, but from patriotic Americanism, which is an argument worth considering, and, and it has merit and substance. And he was just viciously attacked from everywhere because everyone in academia understood postmodernism to be Edward Said. Edward Said is a very shallow scholar. It's amazingly shallow if you read Orientalism. It's just a really silly book. It's a single voice and it has a point. Well, it has a point, but it's just endlessly drumming this same point about everything and everyone and sees no differences. And, and Look, this I, is postmodernism. I think postmodernism. Post I think postmodernism is incredibly shallow and stupid. You know, every time that I've tried to take it seriously, because we're supposed to take it seriously, and I read these books, I'm like, these guys are just retarded. <laughs> you know, they're stupid. And aside from everything else, they hate people. But they hate humanity. They it, hate human nature. They hate everything about but, ev but, about everything. But you I'll know? tell you, and, since, and, since you know, I, I, I delved into this deeply, and, and I have wasted an awful lot of time on this bullshit, but... But French postmodernism, and especially Michel Foucault, is a challenge in many ways. But American it's a challenge because it's boring and stupid and, not and Foucault, verbose. Not Foucault. And I, I don't agree. Foucault is a serious misanthrope. It, and take serious misanthrope seriously. He really hates people, really hates them. He loved the, the, the Iranian revolution. And Foucault is a serious challenge. And he is a son of Nietzsche and the Saad. But this is not our business. In America, postmodernism is this jolly, happy-go-lucky thing that let's, uh, let's all respect everybody's values. Except ours. Except our own. Except, Except our own. Exactly. Except and so Edward Said. Let's, 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 let's support, let's uh, support or, or let's embrace everybody's traditions except our own so let me Let's rephrase your argument everything about about durban is that this has been this has been brewing in academia and then the edward said mugla how would you say pass the edward said disease burst into politics Ulcer. in durban and in, in and in durban and from our perspective this is a a critical moment because this gave public sanction to the idea that you could rephrase your anti-Semitism in the language of human right. This is what encapsulated in the idea of Israel is an apartheid. Now you can now you can formulate your ancient hatred of Jews in the language of human rights. And the manifestation of this is that every anti-Semitic organization under the sun in Israel is called human rights something. Right. And I'll just say, you know, more than that, that because I think it's important, 
you see the, con the you see the conjoining of the war against the Jews and the war against America in the Durban conference, and it's very important, right? Exactly. Because again, the the Jews are in the front. Most of the assault is against the Jews. And by the way, Jews on the streets. You know, they were having anti-Semitic marches on the streets in Durban. They there was a there was a Jewish panel of Jewish uh, human rights groups. And they were shouted down by a mob of anti-Semites who stormed the hall that they were, were sitting in. I mean, their anti-Semitism was palpable. I remember speaking to some people in Durban, some of the Jewish, uh, you know, delegates there at the at the site. Not, I don't think that I spoke to you, people you were, in Israel. I, I didn't get it. You were, you I were was, there. I was here. No, no, no. I was here uh -huh. in Israel, and the, and the <coughs> situation was was very, very bad in Durban. And I remember calling a couple of people who were there, and it was like you were talking to somebody who was being bombed. They were shell shocked. They were shell shocked. They were they were explaining it, and and they were like they could they were they were stunned how bad it was at the time. And then for months afterwards, they just you know they couldn't stop talking about it because it was so bad, but it was also so important. And we're seeing it now 20 years later, because it was the conjoining of those two wars, because in addition to what they did against Israel and against the Jews at Durban, there was also an onslaught against the United States. And it was led by the progenitors of Black Lives Matter today, who, you know, all of last summer were burning down America's cities and have, you know, just uh, destroyed America's police uh, forces and law and you know criminal criminal justice uh, system in the United States now in our times. But 20 years ago, the blueprint for Black Lives Matter was put forward and adopted at Durban. And who put it forward? Put it forward Jesse Jackson, who came to Durban as the head of delegation of several hundred African Americans, including members of the Congressional Black Caucus, one of whom was Cynthia McKinney. If people remember her, she was sort of the original squad member. She was incredibly, uh, just viciously anti-Semitic, viciously anti-Israel, viciously anti-American. And um, so she was there with Jackson and, um, and other members of Congress were there and just a whole army of radical black nationalists from the United States who hate the United States, hate Israel, um, love Yasser Arafat, whatever. And so they were pushing the agenda of reparations for slavery. And it's interesting because you think, well, there were African countries that wanted it. Well, really what the African countries were, were more interested in was uh, debt forgiveness. They didn't really care about the reparations. And the American blacks were pushing this agenda for reparations for slavery. And most importantly, they were basing it on this claim that America was systemically racist that America uh, was uh, inherently sinful and evil, that it was born not in liberty as uh, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, as, as uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln said at Gettysburg, was that it was born in sin and conceived in racism, dedicated to the proposition that black men are unequal to white men. And the that, 1619 and project in a it's nutshell. It's the 1619 product before, project before, before it was, it was it, before it ex, before it officially existed, but it was launched there. And you know, America's sinful racism cannot be expiated, hence the reparations, right? For for Americans who were born over a hundred years after the last, after the slaves were 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 uh, liberated at the end of the Civil War, where half a million Americans died to free the slaves. So. 
you know, the whole thing is is an atrocity. It's a it's a it's a blight on on America that they have people who are so. Uh, I mean, I would say that they were. Um, un, I, it's only they were ungrateful, but you know, I guess you're not allowed to feel gratitude towards your country because if you do, then you're somehow demeaning yourself. God forbid you should feel gratitude towards a system of government that gives everybody equal opportunity before the law, you wouldn't want that. But, you know, I, I don't know. I think that most Americans feel grateful to be living in a, in a free society like that, but whatever, you know, they that they hated their country and they went to war against the United States at Durban and Colin Powell, he, he, he took the U S delegation out of Durban uh, and he dismissed what was happening basically by saying, ah, oh, you know, these are fringe elements and, you know, he 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 condemned the anti-Semitism, condemned the the attempt to criminalize Israel, which actually they did. Um, but he kind of was dismissive of the attacks on the United States, and he was wrong because, I mean, first and foremost, the people who were at Durban, and it wasn't just uh, the very large delegation of black nationalists; it was also a very large delegation of American uh, <laughs> radical left, uh, so-called human rights organizations. Am, led by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, but there were lots and lots of them. And um, they all have an enormous budgets. I mean, their pockets are extremely deep and their ability to cause trouble is very, is massive. And you know, people forget just how powerful they were on September 10th. I mean, the New York Times had a huge feature in the September 11th edition on the weathered underground. It was a profile of Bernadine Dorn and, and William Ayers, the uh, married couple of, uh, of who were the the commanders of the Weatherground uh, Weathermen Underground, you know, and, and uh, they they did kill themselves a lot because they were Keystone cops of bombers, but they also managed to murder a policeman, um, and and cause major damage and and commit mass murder. I mean, to commit murder and to commit armed robbery, and mayhem, and fear and terror, and they were terrorists. And um, notably, um, Barack Obama launched his political career when he first ran for state Senate from this uh, couple's Bernadine Dorn and William Ayers living room in Hyde Park, which was his neighborhood and happened to also be the neighborhood I grew up in in Chicago. And William Ayers is a professor of education at University of Illinois in Chicago. Um, I think Bernadine Dorn was teaching at Northwestern Law School for a while. I mean, these are terrorists. And um, they're also the people behind Barack Obama, who seven years after 9-11 became the president of the United States. And he brought a lot of the people who thought that justice was on the side of the people in Durban who were demonizing the United States and, of course, demonizing Israel into his administration. And today <clears throat> they are the leaders of the Democrat Party. So that and, far and, from and let, being... me, let me mention in the in the background there's a there's a book that's that's that didn't receive enough attention called Radical in Chief, Barack Obama and the Untold Story of American Socialism by Stanley Kurtz. And 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 people just don't realize how radical Barack Obama is and was because everyone was so elated by the fact that this is this is they saw him as a, a, the the realization of I have a dream of Martin Luther King and they didn't understand it's not that at all it's it's the the it, it's it's the the um, anti-American radical black movement 
and even recently, and stop me if I did this on our English version podcast, because I our definitely Hebrew. did it on our Hebrew version podcast, but I might oh. have done it in our previous episodes because I was so struck by it. Obama's speech in the last Democratic convention before the 2020 election. It was a speech delivered with this Obama over mellow dramatic tone with those huge pauses saying everybody who ever reached America suffered he suffered discrimination. The Jews did, the blacks did, the Italians did. They were spit at. They were uh, 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 restricted from um, uh, uh, drugstores. They were trodden on. They were shackled. They were beaten. They were lynched. They were and and. And, and what he's trying to say is that the common experience of Americans is that you were once oppressed. You were once a minority that also suffered discrimination. And you listen to this speech, and in the end, what is, what is the, who is the demon that oppressed everyone? It's America. So this is a speech by a former American president basically saying that the root of evil is America. In America, not just around the world, which is for people, Edward Said uh, studies or saturated with Edward Said studies, this is uh, banal. But he's actually saying that the common experience of Americans is that they should hate America. Yeah, and and uh, I, um, he was the first Durban president. But just to back up a second for what happened after September 11th and books, Bush's speech on September 20th and where it ended up going. So even before he became president, the Durban uh, crew that supported, um, that supported him, that supported Obama was incredibly powerful. And people just forget, you know, you, got, you had moveon.org, you ended up with Code Pink, you had all of these groups that were anti-war protests that were demonizing Bush, Bush Hitler, if you remember, and they were demonizing absolutely everything that the United States did uh, to fight Islamic terrorism after the September 11th attacks, beginning in Afghanistan, and of course, metastasizing in Iraq. And Bush uh, is clearly not a strong person, right? And he he was not able to handle, for whatever psychological reason, he was not able to handle the demonization that he had that he was undergoing by the left. And um, and I, I wrote in my article, and I know that this isn't the only explanation for the sudden embrace of democratization. There's also the aspect of it that they they didn't find the WMD in Iraq, and they were trying to figure out a rationale for having invaded Iraq after they couldn't find the WMD, which which Tony Blair insisted must be the rationale for going in because he said so. But uh, so they they were looking around for that. But I think that the idea that transforming uh, the Arab world into liberal democracies, this concept, I think, was born in large part also from the distress that that Bush and many of his senior advisors felt over the demonization that they suffered at the hands of the Durbanites uh, who were, you know, seated in the U.S. in the U.S. media, that were seated throughout the Democrat Party, that were seated uh, in elite public opinion uh, in Hollywood and 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 elsewhere throughout, America, and of course, as you said, in in wretched academia. And so, but you know, but here yeah, I'm not sure I agree, Carolyn, because because this is. You know, uh, I think William Appleby Williams, the historian, called it the tragedy of American history. 
is that Americans, both right and left, think that America, an occupation by America is actually liberation because you can impose democracy. And, and this is a tendency, you can see it working on both right and left, is that you, they, they think of the American Constitution as this almost holy scripture, which I'm, I'm all in favor of when, it, when, when you're talking about America, but they think that they would bring this holy grail and put it in, uh, put it in Iraq and it would be fine. Yeah, but I I don't know this. I don't know Appleby. I didn't read his stuff. But I'll just. But on the basis of what you just said, I'll just say one thing. Uh, Germany had no history of democracy, and it's a democracy. And the same is true with Japan. And the difference between them and Iraq is not simply a question of Islam, and and Islamic history, um, and and culture and Arab culture and history. It's also that they were defeated, yep. and what what Bush didn't didn't want to do and what he lost his nerve about was actually fighting to win but they were so, also and, nations the nation having a nation is a precondition for democracy because you need some basis of solidarity and iraq is I, just not I, a nation. i'm not going to dis i'm not going to get it like i said it's not the only cause i mean american messianism in 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 global affairs has a very long pedigree and the right. idea that you have to fight for you know i mean world war one under Wilson was a war to make the world safe for democracy, which could be interpreted in many ways. But I mean, he had this whole also, uh, I, you know, uh, uh, utopian notion, and that's why he wanted to join the League of Nations. And and it was really uh, William uh, William Cabot Lodge who said, "No way, right?" I mean, he said, "No, American, I am American. I'll always be." And and the Senate uh, did not ratify the League of Nations covenant, and that was the end of that. But uh, um, you know, Wilson had this idea and an ideal that resonated very strongly in Bush. But I really do think that part of the part of what pushed Bush so hard in this direction was this need to present a war against terrorism as something altruistic, that suddenly it was no longer legitimate yeah. to say that America has to go and kill everybody or as many people as possible in order to deter uh, other Islamic terrorists from attacking the United States, and I think it was not even legitimate that that, to talk about national interest. You, you, no, not just I mean that's the whole point. So I think that the that the that when he latched onto this idea of democracy, that this is what it, and and you can see it in many ways. I mean, you see his aversion to to fighting to win, also in the political aspect of the war. I mean, when it was it was stunning that the that as soon as the United States uh, overthrew Saddam, um, even while I was still in Iraq, and I was in Iraq, I think only for six weeks, but you already saw Hezbollah was coming in and opening up offices in southern Iraq in the Shiite areas in in, uh, in um, Nasiriya um, and, um, and, um, and, and Basra. And, uh, and the Americans didn't do anything. And the Americans didn't stop it, and they weren't trying to stop it, because they thought, well, you know, we have to let the Iraqis do whatever they want. And then ahead of the the first elections in Iraq, Iran was pouring in funds and establishing all of these political parties that were all beholding to Iran, and the Americans didn't do anything to help their own people get elected because they didn't want to interfere in Iraq's uh, in Iraq's destiny. That was up to Iraq to decide which direction that they wanted to go in, and so. You had this weird thing where the United States was was investing trillions of dollars, thousands of soldiers' lives, uh, all of this time and attention to helping the Iraqis help themselves, and then they wouldn't 
lift a finger to actually, if they really believed what they said, if they believed that democracy, liberal democracy, was the best way for people to govern, even in, in Iraq and even in Afghanistan, they had a really funny way of showing it because they didn't help anybody who agreed with them win an election. The people who ended up winning the elections were people, it's always the same. I mean, Israel does the same thing with Arab Israelis. We let, you know, the Qataris uh, pour in millions and millions and millions of dollars before every election campaign to fund these irredentist, uh, radical, uh, pro-Muslim brotherhood, pro-Iranian, pro-Syrian, Ba'athist Arab parties, communist Arab parties, and Israel gives no money to Arabs who are Zionists, who believe in Israel, who are loyal to Israel, who serve in the military, want their children to serve in the military, and who want to integrate into Israeli society, because far be it from us to get involved. And we also have other reasons. We have crazy election laws that give state funding to anybody who's already in in Knesset, and we have only anti-Israel Arab lists in Knesset. But the Americans didn't have to do that. They didn't have any crazy pathological laws that were that were blocking them from from doing something that that by their own lights was the moral thing to do, which was to help the Iraqis who believed in democracy actually leave the country. Instead, they handed the keys over to these operatives who were com- controlled entirely, paid for. They were the brainchild of the Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran. And so this is this is how it degenerated so quickly in Iraq and and also in Afghanistan. And it was this lack of self-confidence, the lack of self-confidence, you know, obviously had many different sources. But one of the sources was the stress that that Bush felt for being demonized so bitterly, so harshly by the left. You know, I remember when when he was president, so many of his really ardent supporters who wanted it to succeed, who, who believed in the war, who sent their children who, who, to fight in the war, who, who were in the war. They all said, why isn't Bush explaining this? Why isn't he standing up? Why isn't he defending the war? Why isn't he explaining the war? This was in Iraq, which was mainly in the headlines. You know, in the later years of the Bush administration, Afghanistan was more accepted because it was hard to reject the idea that the United States should go into the country that Al Qaeda had been uh, uh, refugee, you know, had had its bases and had planned the September 11th operation from. But, but he, but he never, but he never, um, he never, he never defended it, and I think he never defended it because he was afraid and because he was embarrassed, and so he kept talking about democracy, 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 but he never explained why it was important for the United States to be there. And that that was that was that loss of self confidence was very much that. And then of course you know we got Obama. And then I think it's important. And my husband actually told me, and he's right. He said, you, "But you you explain the American part, but the American part is inextricably linked to the anti semitism and to Oslo and to the Palestinian terrorist bombing of Israel at the time." So I mean, I why don't why don't we segue into that because I think that. You know, the conjoining of the war against the United States that was declared at, at Durban and the war against the Jews that was declared at, at, at Durban has continued to be played out um, in the West and unfortunately in Israel to a very large degree through our left uh, all along. And, and, and don't forget the quote that you used in our Hebrew version from Jeremiah writes, uh, because that, that 
I think is 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 almost what the that key. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Exactly. So Durban was the ideology blaming America for 9/11. That's what it is, and this is what Obama's presidency was all about. Right, right, and and the thing is, is that it's not surprising, right? It's not surprising, and in fact, it was to be expected that Obama would be so anti-Israel, that, that Biden is so anti-Israel, and that Bush, who had no nerve, was also anti-Israel in his way, because each for their own reasons, but each very much uh, shaped by the anti-American, by, by the conjoining of anti-Americanism and anti-Semitism, first, in, you know, most obviously at Durban. But really, you know, going back to the 1940s and the KGB uh, planning the political warfare strategy for fighting the United States in the Cold War. Um, but he, he, Bush is he here, I, I keep thinking about him. And, you know, obviously I mean, his, latest, his, his latest thing is his speech at Shanksville where he was comparing uh, uh, American citizens to Al Qaeda terrorists who attacked is to a, who attacked the United States on 9/11. It's just a, a further, um, for it's really further evidence of this that he simply could not handle being attacked by the left. That he simply he couldn't he it it it, it he was incapable of accepting that he was so despised by the left. It was important for him to make a, to to be accepted by them. For whatever reason, and I and I don't feel like getting into psychology because I don't care about it, but um, he and his dad had this kind of, you know, we always used to call it the the country club anti-Semitism of the of the Republicans, which was and the that, State Department, and the State Department. But you know, they were sort of patricians, right? I mean, the Bush the Bush family is a is a is a um, dynasty is a political dynasty in the United States. His uh, his grandfather, I think it was Preston Bush, was a U.S. senator, and he was very pro-Nazi, by the way. And then Bush was the head of the CIA, and he was very much of the old boys club uh, from Yale and Skull and Bones and all the rest of it. At any rate, they had this idea, and it was really ingrained. And by the way, it's very strong. I feel I see it a lot in the Marines, uh, in the higher echelons of the Marines, when I used to work with them. Um, that it's this idea that there's a division of um, that America and Britain are are all good and they're sources of good in the world and they're they're great powers and they should be by rights. And Israel um, is not, and that um, Israel. Uh, it has nothing to do with the land of Israel of the Bible, and um, and and that Israel is just uh, you know creation after World War II because of guilt from the Holocaust. So that they buy this idea, they don't accept the idea that Israel is an ally of the United States. They don't accept the idea that hatred of the United States from places like uh, Iran and from the Arab world uh, has uh, any relationship to the hatred against Israel and Jews from those same places. And uh, part of this uh, anti-Semitism that they feel uh, links them to the left because they think that, you know, well, we can join them on the Israel bashing thing and then they'll leave us alone on the other stuff because we'll be able to distinguish ourselves from the people that they truly hate, which are the Jews, and then they'll like us and uh, then they'll get along with us and they'll make deals with us on the things that have to do with the United States. 
And, um, and, and so Bush, you know, he, especially later on in his presidency in his last two years, when he basically gave Condoleezza Rice the keys to the realm and said, do whatever you want. And she tried to reinstate the Oslo Accords and the Oslo process. And she had this crazy conference in uh, Annapolis and she made Sippy Livni come in through the side entrance so that the Saudis wouldn't have to be seen with her. And, you know, and then she compared Israel to the Jim Crow South. And so she, she was very anti-Israel and uh, she, at any, but I digress. And uh, so, so that was Bush and Obama, on the other hand, uh, sees Israel uh, like uh, Jesse Jackson sees it. Jesse Jackson, Andrew Young, all of these African Americans who were pushing Malcolm X, Louis Farrakhan, you know, who are sort of the the crazy uncle version of it, but it's the same concept that Israel is inherently illegitimate, just like the United States is. That Israel uh, is a colonial implant and uh, doesn't have a right to exist. That it stole the land of the Palestinians. There's something similar to that to what the what the Bushes think, but. Um, but that, uh, but it's it's very venal hatred. And if Bush loves America and is trying to make common cause with people who don't like it that much by joining them and attacking the Jews, so I'm talking about both the father and the son. Well, the the people like Obama come to it from a hatred of America that extends as well to Israel. So it's almost an Islamist way of looking at things, or a communist way of looking at things. At any rate, it's a conjoining of the anti-American war and the anti-Jewish war that were both declared officially at Durban in, in 2000. And, and, the, and it's the same war. This is one of the most striking, it almost never fails, is that, that the haters of, of Israel among the American elite are almost uniformly anti-American. And those who are serious patriots instinctively also support America, I mean, support Israel. Except that the thing is, is that, I mean, I guess you could say that George Bush, when he, George W. Bush, when he made this speech uh, on September 11th attacking Americans, that he basically just joined the mob then, right? That he, that he has latched onto this anti-Americanism. And so he can call it anti-populism, anti-Trumpism, whatever you want to say. But I mean, the Trumpists, the populists, the Tea Party Americans who you know, he opposed, they are also you know, the evangelicals, and they are also the, you know, hardcore American patriots and vets and everything like that. And they are incredibly pro-Israel. And they are probably the backbone of American support for Israel. Yeah, yeah, but there's also, you're right, because there's also a confused middle of people who are American patriots who are being at least apologetic for supporting Israel, who feel uncomfortable that they have to support Israel. And these are not the Jews. The Jews are, are at least like 70% of them are trying to fend off anti-Semitism by, by trying to, 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 to push their way to the, to the head of the anti-Israel parade. It's just, you look at these people and you thought, you've learned nothing from history. You're not gonna find favor with anti-Semites because you bash Israel or Judaism. Nothing. And it's so funny because since the anti-Semites are also anti-American, people like Bush are also not going to find any 
you know, they're it's soulless. They're not going to embrace him either. You know, they can embrace him now because he doesn't matter because he's a, he's a has-been. He's a guy who everybody, you know, on the right hates because of his uh, democracy project that went awry. But um, but he, but, you know, uh, uh, he, he also um, was an object of, of revulsion and hatred and demonization on the left. And yet he was trying so hard to to show that uh, you know he he didn't hate them back and look I I'm also anti-Israel look I was the first president to support Palestinian statehood you know and all of the rest of it so I think and and he hated Trump and he hates all Trump supporters so you know that's true too but I think that the idea that you can make common cause with anti-Semites to get out from under a Jew hatred or anti-Americanism. Um, is is in both cases a completely futile effort. And you know, here in Israel, we have a left that fundamentally doesn't understand the United States. It doesn't understand what makes it tick. It doesn't understand the nature of U.S. support for Israel, what it stems from, what it's about, how it can be maintained and how it can be lost. They don't understand why Israel is worthy of support. Uh, they get their cues from anti-Semites in the European left for how they're supposed to act. And um, they have completely missed everything about Durban, about anti-Semitism, about anti-Americanism, about radical Islam. And they continue to be of the opinion that what Israel really needs to do is we really need to get international legitimacy. And international legitimacy means that we need the support of the Europeans and the international left and, and the Democrats. And if we don't get that, then no matter what happens, uh, we're, we're, we're done for. We're in trouble. And, um, and you see it um, not only by uh, their continued attempts to appease the PLO in order to win legitimacy, and we're seeing a revivification of this now, really right now, these days, today, yesterday, the day before yesterday, tomorrow, by the Lapid Bennett government, um, that they, this is all that they think. They cannot think. They have received wisdom, which was never anything but pathological. And they refuse to learn anything, and they insist on making mistakes over and over again. So that's one aspect of it. And the other one, is that they can't see not only their own failures, but when another approach succeeds. So like I said, yes, last year, just a year ago, we had the Abraham Accords signed. They were peace for peace. It was an extraordinary event and they never got it. They could never, they hated it because Jordan didn't like it. They hated it because the PLO didn't like it and they thought that that was gonna get us in big trouble with the Arabs if uh, we went ahead and had peace with the Arabs in the Palestinian Authority only because Israel protected from Hamas, because if there were an election, Hamas would win. And so the whole idea that there is some, yeah, that they, they, we, we will give aid to the humanitarian aid, to the people, not to the government, is just a load of crap because, there's, because this is the government that they support. This is what Biden wants, the same Biden who under, you know, either the control or the, insp- or the inspiration of of the Durban people, whether it's Obama, whether it's the the Congressional Black Caucus, whether it's uh, the Squad, whomever it is, the money, you know Soros or whomever in the Democrat Party, 
you know, he has embraced, uh, you know, the the Durban the Durban uh, concept of reality of hating the United States of hating Israel, um, and he's moving forward with it. The Israeli government has embraced this idea that, you know, it's not Hamas that doesn't represent the will of the people; it's them that doesn't represent the will of the people, and so they think that uh, the Gazans are going to wake up to realize that Hamas doesn't represent them. And they're going to do this by not representing the Israeli people who say that this is dangerous and that, of course, Hamas represents the people of Gaza. So, you know, there's a lot of crap going on here, but it's the same crap that we've been dealing with now for decades that was, you know, reached, a, that that got this imprimatur of uh, legitimacy as an international plan at Durban. And uh, God save us. We have to rebuild our democracies so that we can get these people out again. Shana Tova. After all this. <laughs> but this uh, week, you said that Yom Kippur isn't so nice. And I have to tell you, that's not true. Yom Kippur is about coming clean with man and with God and asking for forgiveness and trying to do better. And it's a day of atonement of, for your sins. And it's a day of toning not only for your sins, but for the sins of the entire people of Israel. And the uh, hope that uh, God will, uh, you know, forgive us and protect us coming year. And we certainly need that this year. And uh, so I'm looking forward to it. Um, I'm, I'm more optimistic about this year than I was, say, two months ago. Um, because I feel, I don't know what, that some some new spirits are stirring because the ridiculous government that we have and the ridiculous government that America now has is looking more and more ridiculous. To Their more and chickens more are people. coming home to roost. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So, so perhaps we, this was an awful year. I hope, I hope we have a, a better year. Um, Amen. Amen, brother. Amen, Amen sister. Amen mm -hmm. from Tel Aviv, as we say. Amen from Efrat. <laughs> Liberated Judea. Let's do this in Hebrew again too, Carolyn. I'm 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 always happy to be here with you on the English version, but I feel that my listeners on the Hebrew version are not getting enough. Ah, uh, shucks. Well, Americans, uh, share this, send it around, translate. Tell it. your friends, <laughs> translate it to Swahili, whatever you want, Chinese, add Russian, subtitles, and most of all, just make a subscription and then push the bell button so you get every new video of the. Uh, Carolyn Glick, Midi's uh, our news, news hour, hour with Gadi Tao. With Gadi Tao. Take care. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Shana Tova. Take care. Shana Tova. <laughs>